Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church, and Merry Christmas. Uh, that's what I'm here to say. Uh, as I said last week, if Hobby Lobby can do it and celebrate Christmas in September, why can't we? You know, we are the church. We own Christmas, uh, so we can make it whenever we want, right? So we're here to celebrate uh, Christmas today, and we want to talk about today, uh, you know, I think about the anticipation leading up to Christmas. The reason that, that uh, all the stores uh, put their Christmas stuff out so early is because we all wait in eager anticipation for Christmas, don't we? I mean, it happened when we were kids, and that was the big day. It was the, the Super Bowl for kids, right? Christmas Day, and nobody could sleep on Christmas Eve. And I don't think any other movie uh, or TV show or special or song does as good a job at portraying that anticipation as that one, A Christmas Story. And so uh, as I thought about the anticipation that leads up to Christmas, I wanted to show that clip. I thought I'd wear my award-winning ugly Christmas sweater. Yeah, you like that? It's sparkly. It's very sparkly. I, uh, it actually, I was realizing as I was coming up here that it buttons on the wrong side, which means I'm pretty sure it's a women's sweater. And um, it, it is from Fashion Bug. So um, I'm going to take this off because I don't know that you guys could take me seriously if I preach the whole message like this. And I, I didn't want to just talk about the anticipation leading up to Christmas, the holiday. But I want us for a few minutes just to think about the anticipation that, leads, that was leading up to that very first Christmas 2,000 years ago. And so for, for me to do that, I have to take this off. And I would like for you to turn your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 2. Uh, and we're continuing today, or we're starting up again, I guess, our year-long series called The Story. And, and what we're doing, uh, if you haven't been here, if you're new here, is we are using this book right here uh, called The Story. And as a church, we are going through the entire story of the Bible this year. Now, you might think, okay, we're in the middle of this. I'm already late. No, you're here at a perfect time. And because I'm going to tell you today, we are starting the New Testament. And so if you're here and you want to follow along with us, we would love for you to follow along in this book with us. If you don't have a copy of this book, we've got some at the Info Hub available for free today. And so I don't know how long they'll last, but as long as they're there, you can have one. We ask that you limit it to one per household um, so that everybody can get a chance to read it. But we're going to start in chapter 22 today, uh, and we hope that in advance of next week, you'll read chapter 23 and hear a little bit about the baptism and the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, what we'll talk about next, next week. Now, if you don't have this book, if you don't, can't get this book, you don't want to read in this book, um, that's okay because we're actually reading from this book. <laughs> it's the, the Bible, and, and uh, this is derived from the Bible. And if you have your own copy of the Bible and you just want to read it out of that on the back of your worship program, you'll see that there's a reading plan for every week. And you can read right out of your own Bible, and you can be caught up and ready to go. If you don't have one of these... If you don't own a Bible, uh, we've got one of these for you as well. We'd love to give you this as a gift. Uh, you can go grab it now or you can get it after the service, but out on the Info Hub, uh, there are several copies of the Bible, and we'd love for you to take one and read along with us and be in the story with us. We're going to, like as I said, we're going to uh, get to Luke chapter 2 and talk about the Christmas story, um, but we'll get there in just a minute. Now, as, as we've read the last 21 weeks, as we've gone through the Old Testament, um, I've got to admit, and I'm sure you would, um, it can get a little discouraging at times, can it? I mean, imagine if for a minute if you were in the shoes of the uh, nation of Israel, uh, the believers at that time. You know, for there were those moments when God was physically with you on earth, like when you could feel his presence. Those would have been awesome, right? I mean, those moments where God was leading the nation of Israel with a pillar of cloud or a pillow of fire, and, and you could feel the physical presence of God uh, right there in your midst, you know, but as we read the Old Testament, and especially towards the end of the Old Testament, so many more times we get this feeling like that the people are really searching. 
You know, that the people of Israel are wandering, that they, they can't feel God's presence, that they're, they're lost and detached from a God who, it seems, at least at first glance, um, isn't really leading them. Well, but that's in the lower story, right? I mean, we've been talking about how the Bible actually has two stories. There's the lower story, which is our daily lives. It's the ups and downs and the things that we encounter, and our lower story is changing all the time. We, we, we have good days and we have bad days, and good things happen and bad things happen, and that's the lower story. But we've also said that there's this upper story in the Bible, and this is the story of God, and this story never changes, okay? So from a lower story perspective, it could feel like God was absent. But when we back up and look at God's upper story, what we see is that's actually because the people who are leading the nation of Israel are not choosing to follow him, you know? And so because of that, what we've seen over the past few weeks uh, and the last few weeks of the story is that the, the nation has been torn apart, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people have been torn apart. They've been, they're in exile at different parts of the world. Uh, the people are scattered. And it really is a dreary time in the nation of Israel. It's much like the middle of a long, cold winter. And, and so now add on top of that this cumbersome system of sacrifices that were meant to uh, atone for or pay for people's sins. And, and it's clear as you read through the Old Testament that there's a new system needed, like, like something had to change. You can hear it in the cries of God's people, and especially as the Old Testament comes to a close, you read verses like this, you can hear in the voices of the prophets, verses like Job 9.33, where Job says, if only there were someone to mediate between us, now it's between God and Job, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Or like this one from Isaiah 64, where Isaiah writes, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, that word rend is a powerful word. It means like to tear apart, you know, to rip open. And, and even that word, oh, there are so many ways you can read the word, oh, when you read the Bible. There's kind of the surprised, oh, like that. Well, this is the painful, agonizing, oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Or how about this promise from God from Ezekiel 37, where God says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they had gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them of one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or divided into two kingdoms. Or this one from Malachi 4, where the prophet Malachi, uh, God says through the prophet Malachi, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, imagine what it must have been like to long for that day. Imagine if you had grown up reading from these prophecies. Imagine if from your youth you had heard verses like this one from Isaiah seven fourteen that says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And imagine how desperate you'd be for this Messiah, for this Savior, Emmanuel, to come. Would you go there with me? Just for a minute, let's imagine the desperation in Israel. Now, why would you rejoice? Because something you've waited your whole life for has come, right? I mean, think about it. The, the, the reason we rejoice, the reason we get joyful about just about anything in our lives, we get the most joyful about the things we've worked the hardest for, and the things we've waited the longest for. I mean, think about that in that song. Just think about the anticipation that must have come with waiting for this Savior, waiting for this Messiah. The world was desperate for a Savior.
You know, over the next few weeks, we're going to study the three years of Jesus' life and ministry. And what we're going to see is that Jesus had a tremendous impact in a short period of time. I mean, really, just three years was how long his ministry lasted. And it changed the world to, to, to an extent that, like today, everything that's ever happened in the history of any time, we refer to as whether it happened before Jesus or after Jesus. And his ministry lasted three years. Well, how was he able to have such an impact? Well, as I've studied this week and I've, I've researched and, and prepared and prayed for this series, uh, one of the things that I've realized is that one of the reasons, I believe, that Jesus was able to have such a big impact in such a short period of time is that the world was desperate for him. Like they were waiting, just like it says in that song, they were, the world lay in wait for a Savior. Now think about how that applies to your life. All right, if you want Jesus to do a mighty work in your life, have a big impact in a short period of time, he can do it. I mean, he's got the power to do it. He can absolutely do it. But you need to be desperate for him. I mean, maybe in your life that means you need to create some space. You need to create a chance to be desperate for Jesus. You know, the world was desperate. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 4.4, but when the time set, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. But God, but God, maybe the most hope-filled phrase in all of Scripture, but God heard the cries of his people. And when the time had fully come, God sent his son, a son named Jesus. And over the next few weeks, as we dive into the life and ministry of Jesus, we're going to take our readings from the four different accounts of his life that are offered by four, authored by four different men. They're commonly known as the Gospels. They're the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the four, first four books in the New Testament. They're four narratives that tell the same story from four different perspectives. Well, how is that, you say? How, how can four different people from four different angles tell the same story? And some things overlap and some things don't, and some are different, and they seem to contradict. How can that be? Well, think about this. Let's say there were four of us uh, looking from four different directions at a, a car accident. Okay, or a play in a football game, or something that you can have different perspectives from. And, and when somebody asked us to describe it, we see from our perspective, right? We can describe what we saw happen. But really, it's when they take all four perspectives and put them together that you get a comprehensive story of what really happened, right? Well, that's what we get with the Gospels, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we read them together, they tell one compelling story of the time when the Son of God walked on earth. In fact, I love what one writer said. He said that the entire story of the Bible can be broken up into three different parts or three different phases. And these are in your notes if you want to follow along. The Old Testament says Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. That's what we've read the last 21 weeks. Jesus is coming. The, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these next four books, say Jesus is here. And then the whole rest of the New Testament tells us Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming Jesus is here. Jesus is coming back. So let's look, start by looking at how those four different accounts, or the Gospels, treat the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. And so first of all, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's look at Mark first, because Mark doesn't specifically talk about the birth of the King. He's silent on that. His version, Mark, uh, starts with the baptism of Jesus. And we'll talk about that next week. Now, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus, and that's really important. Um, but uh, confession time, how many of you sometimes skip over the, um, the list of names in the Bible, the genealogy section? A few of you honest folks, thank you for that. Um, I know that's true. I know that I have friends that do that too, um, because it's just a long list of names, right? But, but I like to remind people that every name has a story. 
And every story matters to God, and those names are important. The genealogy of Jesus is important because of some of the Old Testament prophecies, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But all of the Jews would have known that this Messiah would have come from the line of David. You know, the one who would be the Savior was going to come from David. So Matthew spends quite a bit of time laying out, starting with Abraham, uh, where Jesus came from. And you see names like uh, Jacob and like Judah and and like uh, Boaz, who's the husband of Ruth, who we read about, and David. And then finally, Hezekiah and Josiah, people we've read about through the Old Testament. And finally, at the end of that list, you see Joseph, who was the carpenter uh, that was engaged to be married to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, John's account is different. So that's, that's Matthew. Now, John's account is different. It has a more eternal slant. It's a little bit more uh, romantic. Maybe you'd even say it's poetic. Uh, John's account starts like this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now the Word is a he, right? He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him, in the Word, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Well, who is the Word? Well, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That verse right there, John 1, 14, that is an entire sermon right there. But it's not the one I'm preaching today, so we're just going to have to skip over that. I'm sorry, I wish we could. But, but let's take that verse to remind us that, that Jesus has always been here. Like what John's trying to say is that Jesus was not just the Son of God, but Jesus is God. He was with God and He was God. He was there when the world was made. And at the right time, Jesus became flesh and came to earth. So while Matthew focused on the historical view of Jesus' birth, uh, John focused on the spiritual view or the eternal view. But the version that most of us are most familiar with comes from the book of Luke. It's the version of the story of Jesus' birth that uh, many of us had read to us on Christmas Eve around the Christmas tree or around the fire. It's the version that, if you don't know that, it's the version that Linus tells the Peanuts gang uh, in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. So maybe you know it from there. And you can find that in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. But here is that story. Now, I know you all know that story. I mean, chances are, even if you're not a Christian you know that version of the story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard it. So why would we bother to show that to you? Well, it's because it's so important to understanding who Jesus is. See, Luke, the guy that wrote the book of Luke, uh, Luke was a real man, a real person, right? Luke was a doctor. He was a man of science. He, He was actually the one biographer of Jesus who never walked with Jesus, So Matthew, Mark, and John were all one of Jesus' apostles. They were part of the 70 that followed Jesus around. All three of those guys were. But Luke wasn't like that. Luke came along later, and he took the very scientific approach uh, to writing his gospel account. He, He talked to witnesses, the eyewitnesses who saw those events. He gathered evidence from people who were there. Luke was writing to a Greek audience, and the Greeks didn't want history. They didn't want poetry. They wanted facts. They wanted to know the truth. And so in Luke 1, uh, he, he uh, writes out how he, was, uh, how he came to write out his, his version of the message. He said this, uh, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the, who fir- the first were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Verse 3, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus would have been a friend of his. uh, So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so here's why Luke's account was particularly important when it was written. All of the Jewish people, all of the believers at the time would have heard these predictions. Okay, we call them today, we call them prophecies. All of these prophecies about the coming Messiah. Things like where he would be from and what family he would come from, etc. And and Luke wanted to capture as much of this as possible uh, in a scientific way to tell his readers, to tell people that he had reached the conclusion. He had been convinced, Luke was convinced that Jesus truly was the Son of God. He was the the king the Jewish people had been waiting for. And so as we read through the Old Testament, we see some of these prophecies. You can read these prophecies in your Bible. Prophecies like this, that the king will be a descendant of Abraham. Now that was called out in Genesis 22, 18, and it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, The king will be from the line of David. That was told to us in Jeremiah 23, and it was shown fulfilled in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. Uh, The king will be born in Bethlehem. That's the city of David. That was told in Micah 5 and then fulfilled in Luke 2. The king will be born of a virgin. That was in Isaiah 7. I read that a minute ago and fulfilled in Luke chapter 2. Uh, The king will be honored by gifts from foreign kings. Uh, That was told in Psalm 72. We all know how that works, right? We three kings, you know, and they brought gold and Frankenstein and myrrh, as my girls used to say, right? So uh, we know that the foreign kings, that was in Matthew 2. The king will be worshipped by shepherds. Uh, that was also Psalm 72, and we just read about that in Luke, or saw that on the, on the screen in Luke chapter 2. The king will enter the temple. That was told to us in Malachi 3 and then revealed to be true in Luke 2. And then finally, the king will flee from and return to Egypt. Now that was uh, first foretold in Hosea chapter 11 and then revealed to be true in Matthew chapter 2. Now these are just eight prophecies. Eight prophecies about the coming Messiah that would have been taught hundreds or thousands of years before Jesus came, and they were laid out in the Old Testament. Now, I gave you these eight because I want to share with you some mathematical research I found this week uh, that was done by a man named Peter Stoner, Dr. Peter Stoner, who's a professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College in California. Now, Dr. Stoner is an expert in probability theory, and, and he calculated that the chance that one man one man who was born in Bethlehem could fulfill all eight of these prophecies. He said, what, what is that? What are the odds of that? And he went back to the world's population at the time and, and who had fulfilled, who had done these things. And he concluded that one man fulfilling these eight prophecies, prophecies the odds were one in 100 quadrillion. All right, now I'm going to tell you, big numbers don't mean a lot to me, all right? Now you get above about a thousand and I start to get confused. But one in 100 quadrillion, that's one in 10 to the 17th power. But like I said, numbers don't mean much, so I wanted to give you an illustration of how long odds that are. that is, okay? So let's just imagine that we filled this room two feet deep, okay, up to here on me, with silver dollars, this entire room, and uh, I put an X on one and buried it somewhere in the pile while you weren't looking, and I told you to go, and you had one chance to pick out that one silver dollar. What are the odds that you would pick the one that I marked an X on? Not very good, right? But are they one in 10 to the 17th power? No, not even close. If you want to get to 1 and 10 to the 17th power, uh, you need to pile silver dollars two feet high, not just over this room, all right? not just over the entire city of Carmel, all right? not just over the state of Indiana, but you need to pile silver dollars two feet high over the entire state of Texas, bury one in the middle, and I tell you to go get it. I won't tell you what city it's in. I won't tell you what area it's in. I won't tell you how deep I buried it. Just go find it. You, pick, you get one chance. Pick out one silver dollar. That's the odds that one person from Bethlehem could fulfill those eight prophecies I just showed you. Long odds. 
improbable. Impossible? Maybe impossible. Friends, can I tell you that the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies about Jesus? And can I tell you that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's shown to have fulfilled each and every one of those 300. 60 major prophecies, 250 minor ones. Jesus fulfilled each and every one of those. Now, I can't calculate the odds of that, but it's improbable. It's not just improbable. It's miraculous. Jesus is the king that was promised to the people of God. And so here's the one thing I want you to take away. Here's the one thing that the, verse, that the birth of Jesus, uh, the story of the birth of Jesus tells us. So here's why it's important for you to understand today. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. You know, when you see how the story unfolds, when you look back over the last 21 weeks that we've spent studying the Old Testament, you can see now that God's purpose was always, always has been to send his son Jesus to be our perfect sacrifice. And not just a perfect sacrifice, but the perfect example for how to live. I mean, that's why he came to earth. That's why Jesus left a perfect heaven for you to be our perfect sacrifice and our perfect example. Now, that's not always why the Jewish people thought he was coming to earth. Okay, they wanted a powerful king. They wanted an earthly king who would trample their enemies and, and lead them into battle and deliver them from all the oppression they were facing and get them out of exile. But that's not the king that God sent. And because he didn't look like a king, uh, many people at the time would have mistaken his identity and they would have missed the Messiah. I mean, after all, he didn't look like a king. People expected him to be born in a palace and he was born in a barn. They expected him to be from a big city, but he came from a hick town. And they expected him to, be, to ride a mighty horse, but when Jesus finally came into the city, he was riding a donkey and actually the colt of a donkey. And because he wasn't what people expected, many people, many people missed out on the Messiah. They refused to accept the Savior that was sent by God. I mean, everybody had a different idea of who Jesus should be and what he should look like and how he should act. And when he didn't fit their preconceived notions of what a king should look like, he was rejected. You know, many of us grew up with a preconceived notion of who Jesus is. You know, maybe you had a case of mistaken identity when you grew up. Maybe uh, you had a firm belief, your mind was made up about it, but you've always seen Jesus as like some historical figure or, or a, a good teacher or, or a godly man or a good person. I mean, maybe you see Jesus as a prophet and he's equal to other prophets in the Bible or other prophets in other religious texts. I, I want to tell you, if that's where it stops for you, then you're involved in a case of mistaken identity. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. I love how author C.S. Lewis says it in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon, 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so maybe you're here today and like you already know who Jesus is. You've accepted him as the Lord and Savior of your life, but maybe today you need to be reminded of what your life was like before Jesus. I mean, it may have been a train wreck. Or maybe not. Maybe you're like me and your life was pretty good and you went to work and you came home and you were a nice person, but like something was missing inside of you. Like there was no purpose to that work. There was no purpose to that life. You you need to remember what that's like because you don't want to go back to that life because you've found that Jesus is the one thing that fills that hole and you don't want to go back to that. Maybe you're here today because you just need to create a little bit of desperation for Jesus. Maybe you need to be hungry. Maybe you need more and more Jesus in your life. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, that's where I find myself these days. Like, I just need more Jesus. Or, or maybe you're here because you need to be reminded that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but He is God. And, and that He's on your side and He can pull you through. And whatever it is you're facing today, that Jesus can help you get through that. He, he, can, he can do that for you today. But maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. I mean, you don't have a relationship with Him. You've never made Him the Lord of your life. Well, can I just encourage you that It's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's more important than where you'll live or which house you'll buy or if you have kids or how many kids you have. It's more important than where you go to school. It's more important than who you marry. You need to have an opinion of Jesus. Now, maybe you're here and you don't have an opinion at all. Well, I encourage you to stick with us because over the next 10 weeks, we want to help you have a view of Jesus. You know, we live in a day and age where it seems like in some circles, every opinion is equally valid, right? Every, every view is equally justified. Every opinion counts. Uh, but when it comes to Jesus, that's not true. Jesus can only be one thing. You know, in the next 10 weeks, we want to make sure you gain the right view of who Jesus is. We want you to do the research. We want you to do like Luke did and investigate all of the evidence and come to that same conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King that we've been waiting for. Because the most important decision you'll ever make in your life is this. Who's the Lord of your life? Are you the Lord? Or is Jesus the Lord? Because it can't be both. You have to decide. Remember, the Bible has three parts, right? Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. And Jesus is coming back. And one day, Scripture tells us Jesus is going to return. And he's going to stake his claim on earth. And when he does, you want to be among the ones that he chooses to go with him. All right, but don't take my word for that. Over the next 10 weeks, let's read the rest of the story together. And we'll come to that conclusion. You know, in all of history, there have only been 12 men who've walked on the moon. And one of those men was astronaut James Irwin uh, right here. And after his journey to the moon, as you can imagine, um, Mr. Irwin had many chances to tell his story. Uh, both in presentations, um, at dinner parties. Uh, If you ever heard Brian Regan talk about this, you can imagine what that must have been like, Um, and uh, in in letters. And towards the end of his life, Irwin started writing this at the end of all of his letters. He'd always end with this statement. There's one thing better than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on earth. James Irwin understood the story. He knew that God always keeps his promises. Jesus is coming. Jesus is here. God kept his promise. Jesus is coming back. You know, and may I remind you that the first time Jesus came to earth, he came as a helpless little baby, that he came in peace. 
But the next time, Scripture tells us he's going to come in power and riding on a cloud. Please make sure you're ready because God always keeps his promises. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to go into a time of prayer, but as we do that, I just want you to take a minute and think about what it is you need to pray about. I mean, maybe today what you really need to pray about is like that you want to create that desperation for Jesus. That, that you want more of him, that you want to be hungry for him. You want Jesus to do a great work in your life. But there's so many things standing in the way right now. I mean, your work and, or your school, and the, the things that your kids are involved with. And maybe this morning you just need to pray for more hunger. God, I want more of you. Jesus, I need more of you in my life. Maybe you're here and you've already got that desperation. Your life's a mess and you don't know what to do and you're involved in stuff that you never thought you'd get caught up in, but it's here. Maybe you just need to ask God into your life this morning. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to come and take over. You're, you're tired of trying to fight these battles on your own. Lord God, I'm so thankful that you always keep your promises. I'm thankful for the promises in Scripture that you made thousands of years ago that Jesus was going to come, that he was going to come and be the perfect sacrifice and the perfect example, and that he came and he took our place in death so that we can have eternal life with you. I'm so thankful for that this morning. God, I'm also hanging on the promise that he's coming back, and he's going to come back and he's going to claim his people, and, and Lord, I want to go. I want to be in heaven with him, and I know there's a whole lot of people in this room that want to be there with him too, so would you help us today? Would you help us to have that faith? Help us to cling to that promise that you're coming back. You're going to take your people. But God, in the meantime, we know that you've given us a mighty work to do and and we need your Holy Spirit to do that. So would you send your Holy Spirit on this place? As we go into a time of worship now, would you just help these words to be pleasing to your ears? Would you help us to sing with all of our hearts, to take a stand for what we believe, to, to, to stand here and know that you are God, that you sent your son Jesus to be a powerful and precious influence in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen.